It's Monday, June 28th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is David Osmond for Radio Free Oz, and I'm backstage just uh, off the main set of Afghan Gladiator. That's that hot new TV show that gives returning vets from AFPAC a chance to go back for another tour of counterinsurgency. Exciting show, and here's the winner of tonight's contest, the former National Guardsman who already revolved through eight tours over there. It's PTSD First Class Crystal McStanley. Well, tell us something about yourself, Chris. Uh, yes, sir. Well, um, I joined the Marines when I was 18 for on-the-job training, and it sure was because, uh, like, uh, three days later, I was in AFPAC. Oh, really? want to go back, but they said I'm too used up, so I guess I showed them up. Well, I guess you did. Well, Ed, you, you must have brought home some souvenirs or something from your last tour, right? Yeah, PTSD, night sweats, the crabs, and I used to be a woman, but the Army took care of that last time I, I looked. Oh, really? Well, that's sad, yet there's something comfortably ironic about, about that, too, Chris. But tell us all about the Afghan Gladiator Challenge. Well, sure, sir. First, there's the uh, pop-up firefights. Mm-hmm. I get five points for every turban, and, and I lose five for every CD. That's collateral, collateral damage. damage. I ended up just, just over even. Uh-huh. Then there's the uh, IED swamp thing. I had to drain the swamp and replace it with a girl's school mm-hmm. without blowing anybody up. Mm-hmm. Nation building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. And then comes bribe the warlord stuff, right. you know. Right. It's uh-huh. tee up or get terminated on the Kabul to freaking nowhere highway. Cost me an arm and a leg. Oh, really? Glad it wasn't mine. Uh, well, me too. Say, you survived those first three t- challenges, and, and but 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 how did the big show end up? It ended up, man, in the poppy field. You know, you have to dream your way out of it. Really? It's kind of like the war itself, huh? Well, tell me, how, how'd you do it? Well, I used my big jar here of Fratricet. It's, it's a meth-enhanced electrolyte replacement system, and it keeps me up all day. Because, yeah. see, over there, they, they, they own the day uh, and the night. It really oh. doesn't matter. Well, uh, so wait, you you won something, though, besides the, the tour to go back. Yeah, right? I get this case of Bud Light Lime. That's enough to get the general from Paris to Berlin and then the Hummer. The Army gave you a Hummer? Not just the down payment, but it's got robusted air conditioning and skin seats. Well, so that's your job. It's not not a tough one. You're just driving the general. Isn't no, it, huh? sir. Our orders are to clear, hold, and forget about it. Well, well what about winning the war? There's no winning, sir. It's uh, uh, just survival. Well, PTSD, First Class Crystal McSamley, that's just what you've done on Afghan Gladiator today. So from me to you, good luck on your way back to Stan. Thanks. By the way, all those countries over there are called Stan something. What does that mean? Did they tell you what that means? Yeah, sir, Stan is Muslim for pain. Afghani pain, Uzbekis pain, Paki pain, Missouri pain. <laughs> well, no pain, no gain. Yeah, well, lots of one and uh, none of the other. But, it, but it's a good war, sir. Uh-huh. I already signed up my unborn children to over there and forget what I'm going to go over and uh, clear and hold. Well, it sounds like you've got it all under control, uh, Stan. And, and, and this is uh, David Osmond for Radio Free Oz here at the Bob Hope Studios in Burbank, California. Heidi ho Radio Free Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. My co-host, David Osmond. Hey, Pete. You know, I'm still kind of breathing hard from all of those graduation exercises. Boy, what a busy couple of weeks there were there. 
college graduate, high school graduation, middle school graduation. It was like every kid I know was somehow making the leap into another dimension out there into, you know, the world of... Of, of whatever. Of whatever. Yeah, of no jobs. But, uh, you know, yep. I always love them because some people give weird speeches. You know, they oh, ask yeah. people because they're famous, but they don't know how to speak and they don't figure that out until they get there. No, I, it would be difficult. I, I think I'd probably make it up on the spot, sort of out of the ink blots on the page in front of me. But Patty Smith did that. You know, Pat, Patty Smith, the, uh, well, what the, um, she's a singer, performance I artist. Put, uh, I split a bill with her. Whole thing. I Patty split Smith. a bill with her in Madison, Wisconsin. Did you Proctor pay her and half? Bergman. She paid her half. <laughs> Good. And that was the time I drove under the, uh, the, this, parking garage there and it said eat the rich on the wall mm. okay patty well go, patty go, go. she spoke at uh, pratt institute yep she said my greatest urge is to speak to you of dental care my generation had a rough go dentally our dentists were the army dentists who came back from world war ii and believed that the dental office was a battleground you have a better chance at dental health and i say this because you want at night to be pacing the floor because your fuse is burning inside of you, because you want to do your work, because you want to finish your canvas, because you want to help your fellow man. You don't want to be pacing because you need a damn root canal. So floss, use salt and baking soda. Take care of your damn teeth. Thank you, Patty. What's next? Patty Smith. Well, John McCain, you know, John McCain was there. Dang uh, fence McCain. Yeah, he was at Ohio Wesleyan University. What's he doing? That's a peaceful university with, with, with very fine liberal arts leanings. What's John doing Well, there? they gave him two paragraphs. You might think that I'm now going to advise you not to be afraid to fail. Wait a minute. Do that again. Okay. That's, that's John, a rebus. I'm John McCain speaking. Okay. Yeah. You might think that I'm now going to advise you not to be afraid to fail. No. He's you with not. me so far? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not. <laughs> be afraid. Yeah, be afraid. Okay. Speaking from considerable experience, failing stinks. Just don't be undone by it. Failure is no more a permanent condition. In his success. This or, but man. For, but for you, John. <laughs> but for you, John, five ninety nine. I don't know. This man, he was this close to being president of the United States. Be afraid. Be very afraid. One more. Huh? Okay, one more. Well, this is Glenn Beck, of uh -oh. course. Glenn Beck, who was invited to, no surprise, Liberty University. That's the only place that'll let him talk. Okay, Glenn said this. Uh, okay. Learn. Laugh. Love, sleep hard, but sleep less. Pray on your knees. To whom much is given, much is required. You have been given the world and beyond. Dot, dot, dot. Never want anything too much. You will pay too high of a price one way or another. That's writing, isn't it? Man, isn't that, it? Man, what that prose? Pro style. Come on. Wow. He's superb. Uh, he goes on. Labels are meaningless, but Louis Vuitton's shoes are really the best. <laughs> That's it. it, it no, it's, okay. there's, there's one more. There's more. One, one. The kids at Liberty, they want, they want the paragraph that's going to change their life. Here it comes. Someone you meet today is afraid or suffering. They've just been listening to John, John McCain. McCain. And they're afraid of being afraid. Right. Find them. Find them every day and comfort them. Shoot to kill, always tithe. Shoot to kill, always tithe? 
Well, I'm going to – that's the name of this segment, obviously, Shoot okay. to Kill. All, 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 but uh, Glenn Beck, uh, he's just another of these nons that have become so important and, and so wealthy by saying anything in their little minds. Yeah. Someone you meet today is afraid or suffering. Find them. Kill them. No, I'm sorry. Always tithe. No, that's not it either. Oh, well. Thanks, Glenn. Now, this story takes me back to the Kennedy administration, where I was an intern, and I worked on the Senate Subcommittee on Migratory Labor. I was a, a, what you call a, a writing legislative assistant, whatever it was. And, and we had to put together six different bills uh, that had to do with migratory labor, um, you know, good working conditions, good housing, health, transportation, and uh, child labor laws. We wrote them all, and the Southern Democrats and the Republicans got together and defeated them all. Well, now here it is, 2010, and something's happening. The Obama administration has opened a broad campaign of enforcement against farmers who employ children and underpay workers, hiring hundreds of investigators and raising fines for labor and wage violators. This is the new New Deal. A flurry of fines and mounting public pressure on blueberry farmers is only the opening salvo, Labor Secretary Hilda L. Solis said in an interview. Now, Ms. Solis, the daughter of an immigrant farm worker, aha, said she was making enforcement of farm labor rules a priority. You go, girl. At the same time, Congress is considering whether to rewrite the law that still allows 12-year-olds to work on farms during the summer with almost no limits. The blueberry crop has been drawing workers to eastern North Carolina for decades. But as the harvest got underway in late May, growers stung by bad publicity and federal fines were scrambling to clean up their act, even going beyond the current law to keep all children off the fields. I like that. The growers were also ensuring that the workers, mainly Hispanic immigrants, would make at least the minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. Quote, I picked blueberries last year and my four-year-old brother tried to, but he got stuck in the mud, said Miguel, a 12-year-old child of migrants. The inspectors find the farmers, and this year, no kids are allowed. So his four-year-old won't be stuck in the blueberry mud this year. Again, good news. Child and rights advocates said they were encouraged by these signs of federal resolve, but they were also waiting to see how wide and lasting the changes would be. Across the country, hundreds of thousands of children under 18 toil each year harvesting crops from apples to onions, according to a recent report by Human Rights Watch, detailing hazards to their health and schooling and criticizing the Labor Department for past inaction. Soon after dawn, the vans stream through the roads, ferrying migrant workers from trailer camps to blueberry farms, where they pluck the fragile fruits for 10 hours or more a day. Last year, the fields were filled with children, so this is encouraging, said Emily Drakeage, North Carolina Regional Coordinator of the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs, a national network of state and private agencies. Beyond barring children from the fields, growers here also spruced up migrants' trailers and barracks and adopted scanners to record the buckets of berries collected by each worker. Now, wait a minute. They spruced up the trailers and barracks. What? They deloused them. They, uh, what? They put doors and windows on them. They kept people from dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. And they put scanners. So actually, when you pick a bucket of berries, you get paid for a bucket of berries, not for every other bucket of berries. Jerry, don't go jogging.
California Attorney General Jerry Brown, former governor, Governor Moonbeam, Mm -hmm. says that his recent comment comparing GOP rival Meg Whitman's ad campaign to Nazi propaganda was off the record and should not have been reported. Nothing's off the record these days, This was just a private conversation, Brown said. Nobody had a pencil. Nobody said, by the way, is this a statement that you're making to the public? What? If you keep looking for pencils, you you got a problem, Jerry. (laughs) That's why he was governor 40 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, 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 Governor Pencil. A radio reporter in San Francisco reported that Brown harshly criticized the billionaire former eBay CEO's tactic of bombarding Californians with political ads supporting her run for governor. Governor, you know, she's buying her way in, of course. She's yeah. going to spend $120 million of her own fortune, which is like, what, a little over 10% uh, to buy her way into the governor's mansion. She will not succeed. You know, she said, he said, by the time she's done with me, two months from now, I'll be a child molesting dot, dot, dot. Brown was also quoted as saying, she'll have people believing whatever she wants about me. Okay, it's like Goebbels, Brown said, comparing Whitman with the minister of propaganda in Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. Goebbels invented this kind of propaganda. He took control of the whole world. She wants to be president. That's her ambition. The first woman president. That's what this is all about. Brown has not disputed the accuracy of the report. He says that he bumped into reporter Doug Suvern. Suvern was biking and Brown was jogging. And uh, they had a little chat, and it ended up on the national news. Oh, boy. I, the, the more open mics and, um, uh, you know, casual conversations that aren't supposed to be reported these days, you, you can never say anything off the record, Jerry. You can't say anything off the record. But, you know, the interesting thing is that the paper had to explain, I, we're so old, who Goebbels was. Yes, they did. The, well, uh, no, actually, yes, he had to tell everybody who his reference was, because they wouldn't know. Oh, who he, Goebbels he, was. Jerry, yeah. They must think it was turkey talk or something like that. But here's the thing. Will Meg Whitman live up to his, you know, his description? Will she indeed go Goebbels on Brown during this election? Because it's going to become very obvious very soon that he's the wiliest guy in the world, well, the there, smartest guy. You know, there's, there's this crowd of women trying to become the first whatever, you know, the first grizzly in charge and, and they're they're all they're all you know i guess that the the liberal women the women you would like to see running for president are all like hillary ki- clinton yeah they're all kind of standing in line waiting to be supreme court judges which yeah. is not a bad job for you hillary yeah well hillary's gonna put on the robe you can bet the deal is okay i'll go out and fix Bush's mistakes abroad, if I can. I'll try to heal some of the bleeding wounds, and then you put the robe on me. Yeah, yeah. And Carly we, Fiorina yeah, right, the, and Meg Whitman, both billionaires or something like it, take all their money after breaking the glass ceiling and then break into politics. Breaking the glass ceiling. The presidency is not what's awaiting for you on the 33rd floor. I studied Japanese for a while. I like the language. Uh, I like the whole feeling of the kanji and the various alphabets, and I would have continued except they stopped the course at UCLA while I was there. But I have gotten into Japan, and I realize that half of them are really fine people, and half of them are stone crazy. Okay? The Cove, an Oscar-winning documentary about dolphin hunting in Japan, would seem to be a natural fit for movie theaters here in Japan. But so far, the distributor has yet to find a single one that will screen the film. This from The Grey Lady. And if Shurhai Nashimura and his compatriots on Japan's nationalist fringe have their way, none 
ever will. Nationalist fringe, that's a scary term in Japan, you know, before World War II. Those nationalists were taking out the big swords to every politician that disagreed with them. Okay, in a country that shudders at disharmony and remains wary of the far right's violent history, the activists' noisy rallies, online slanders, intimidating phone calls, and veiled threats of violence are frightening theaters into canceling showings of the Cove, which not only depicts dolphin hunting in an unflattering light, but also warns of high levels of mercury in fish, a disturbing disclosure in this seafood-loving nation. And of course, a lot of the dolphin uh, trawlers have the big Japanese uh, rising sun on them. Okay. It's a stark example as well of how public debate on topics deemed delicate here can be easily muffled by a small minority, the most vocal of whom are the country's estimated 10,000 rightists who espouse hardline stances and disputes against Tokyo's neighbors. That's only 10,000 out of many, many millions. If you have any pride in your nation, do not show this film, Mr. Nashimura bellowed through his loudspeakers at a protest in front of the Yokohama New Theater, with about 50 protesters with billboards and rising sun flags in tow. Will you poison Japan's soul? I love these folks. The Cove feature scenes, many of them filmed surreptitiously, of dolphin hunts in the village of Taiji, southwest of Tokyo. A group of activists, led by Rick O'Berry, who trained dolphins for the television series Flipper, witnesses the violent hunts in a secluded lagoon where fishermen corral dolphins, select a few to capture alive, and use harpoons to stab the rest to death, turning the inlet crimson with their blood. The killings, the activists charge, are driven by a lucrative trade in live dolphins for aquariums, as well as a local market for dolphin meat, which is contaminated with mercury. They won't buy it unless it's contaminated with mercury, because that's what gives it that extra slippery, quicksilverish kind of taste. Commercial whaling has been outlawed worldwide since the mid-80s, but the ban does not cover smaller marine mammals like dolphins. Japan kills about 13,000 dolphins a year, according to the fisheries agency, of which about 1,750 alone are captured in Taiji. We love dolphins. We should not be killing them. They are smarter than most of the members of Congress. I tell you what, Japan rightist, why don't you just tear down that shrine to all those Japanese soldiers who committed all those atrocities and start worshipping dolphins? Lemon, it's a lemon. This car's a lemon and I'll never get home. Hey, brother, you should be smoking, not your car. I'm Rudy Rude, naughty head of Rusty Ford Motors. And when you turn the key, do your car catch on fire? Lemon car, very tinny. And my steering wheel's got a squeak. And the brakes on this darn lemon haven't lasted me a week. Day old, it's a day old. Your batteries are day old and already it's day. Yes, day. It's a day, it's a day, it's a day, it's a day, it's a day old. Your spark plugs are crusted, there's a crack in your head. Hey, don't you make a fool of yourself, Johnny. Come go tell us what the matter. I'm sitting in this limo, trying to get the gears to mesh. I say pressure drop, oil pressure drop, oil pressure gonna drop on me. Walking down. 
stamp is that in my hand? Johnny, that's too bad. Oh, whoa, whoa! I got to run to the shop for repair, and there's no shop. Closed up. I get a tow to the shop for repair, and they locked up. No luck. Credit? You can get it if you really want, but you must apply. So come to Rastafford Motors, Johnny, where our service never stops. If you want to get that old lemon got fixed in a strange land. Check his hash oil, Rebron. We got to fix it together. And clean up his water Help pipe. one of us together. But Johnny, you're we going to, to dig our Rastafordian vibrations. Hey, wait a minute. I recognize you. You I shot the sheriff. No, man, I did not see the sheriff. I recognize Hey, give me a break. And you no, shot the deputy, too. I didn't see hey, the deputy, man. Hey, come on, give me a break. Hey, give me a break, man. You know, Dave, we worry about the big problems in America, our government doing huge things like invading countries or, you know, uh, creating pipelines where none are needed or big, big things. But big, big. The, okay. the Japanese, smaller issues, but in a sense, bigger. The Sunday Times reported just recently that Japan, in an effort to secure votes to allow commercial whaling, has bribed small countries with aid packages plus spending money for prostitutes for the visiting officials. Six countries, St. Kitts, Nevis, Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Grenada, Ivory Coast, and Guinea. That's the problem with the UN is that everyone's got to vote in the General Assembly, right? Okay, it's cool. It's got to go through this. Um, they, they were willing to negotiate. Like to take, excuse me, Mr. Bergman, I'd like to take a vote of the class. Uh, does anybody recognize any of those nations? Or are they familiar to anybody? I, we're going to have a flag identification at the end of the course, so you just better get the St. Kitts, Nevis. Uh, Marshall Islands, Marshall Kiribati, Kiribati, Ivory I know Coast, Kira, and Guinea. And she's got a body, but that don't work for me. Willi- anyway, go ahead. They're willing to nego- they were <laughs> willing to negotiate with an undercover Times reporter posing as a lobbyist, and, and, and some revealed their similar dealings with Japan. We support Japan because of what they gave us, said one senior uh-huh. fisheries official for the Marshall Islands. He said, the Times also reported that officials are given cash, up to $1,000 a day in envelopes, and call girls are made available in their hotels. I believe the call girls come in envelopes also because the Japanese, if nothing, are discreet. Well, they're wearing envelopes and you know how beautiful that Japanese uh, paperwork is. Yeah. Yeah. Japan is making a push for more international whaling. They've been able to get away uh, and around the ban by calling the whales they kill scientific research, right? Scientific sushi. Yeah, exactly. The Japanese, you know, masters of scientific sushi. This is a codicil to my ever asked question, What would happen if the poor voted? From CNN, the mortgage meltdown is hitting the African-American and Latino communities harder than the whites. Of borrowers who took out mortgages between 2005 and 2008, some 8% of both African-American and Latino borrowers have lost their homes to foreclosure, compared to 4.5% of non-Hispanic whites, almost two to one. The racial and ethnic disparities continued even after controlling for income differences. African-American and Latino borrowers were about 30% more likely to get higher rate subprime loans than white borrowers with similar risk characteristics. 
Of the total pool of homeowners, 17% of Latinos have lost their homes to foreclosure or are at imminent risk of losing their homes, while 11% of African Americans are in that position. By comparison, 7% of non-Hispanic whites have lost their homes or are about to. It's not good news that that non-Hispanics at 7%. That's an awful figure, but 11%, one out of every 10 or more of African Americans who took out a mortgage sold higher risk phony baloney five year subprime mortgages are going to lose not only their not only their homes but all the money they put into it. So much for the own-your-own-home American dream. The reason for the disparity is that African Americans and Latinos were marketed riskier, higher-cost loans that became unaffordable during the mortgage and economic crisis. These were more expensive mortgages and were more likely to fail. It's like if you go into the ghetto, gasoline is more expensive, food is more expensive, the poorer the neighborhood, the more it costs to live. Figure that one out. African-American and Latino communities are likely to lose $373 billion in declining property values between 2009 and 2012. Well, if that class loses $373 billion, where is the consumer strength going to come to take us out of this double-dip recession? An estimated 2.5 million foreclosures were completed between 2007 and the end of 2009. This is roughly one in every 20 mortgages outstanding at the time of the crisis. And an estimated 5.7 million additional foreclosures are imminent. Ooh, my. That's uh, okay. Let's see. 5% have been foreclosed. That means one out of every 20 houses on the block, one out of every 20 apartments in the building have been foreclosed on. This is a real emergency. Time for the new, new deal. Well, it's the first day of summer, and out there in Bismarck, North Dakota, is our social media guru, Scott Wild. What's up, Scott? How you doing, man? I am loving the longest day of the year. Oh, me too. Although here on Whidbey Island, the longest day of the year, the first day of summer, it's been raining all day in a month of lots of rain. I love it. A lot of people complaining. But enough of that. It never rains on the web. Exactly. And today we're going to talk about members-only subscription sites because Radio Free Oz is going to launch Oz Central, which will be a members-only site. Tell me about the history of those and how they look and, you know, what you can do with them. Well, one of the things that, you know, we typically call them premium content sites because when you pay a subscription fee to some of these member sites, you are getting premium content that you cannot get out on the web. And we are going to be uh, producing exclusive material just for this Oz Central. Um, and what it's going to do is it's going to allow people to gain access. So typically, uh, what I tell my clients when I'm setting up a membership site is I said, you know what, this has to give them unprecedented access to the show that they cannot get normally. Um, and that's one of the privileges of being a member. I mean, membership has its benefits. We've heard that tagline before. And it's really true when you look at some of these sites. Now, one of the things you've talked about is Blue Skype. And so this is going to be one of the premium content uh, access pieces that people are going to have by being a member. Uh, all of our members are going to be able to uh, submit their Skype ideas and or their their pitch to be on your show on Blue Skype and they'll have access to that form inside the members only area. And so that's just one of the privileges of being a member. You know, membership has its benefits. Yeah. So 
we're going to um, give people access. You've also talked about some of the other types of shows, the email show, um, where people are going to be able to email in ideas, and you're going to cover those uh, in in more detail on a show. I call that, by the way, I call that show Look and See with Peter B., because I will literally take those, talk about them, and Skype the people that I find the most interesting. But those posts will only be uh, coming from Oz Central members. Absolutely. You know, you're giving people a chance to connect with your show in a way that they normally would not just have as as just a public listener or a free listener. You're going to give them extended versions of interviews um, where, you know, it's sort of like, I call it the director's cut of the interview. They might even be able to hear some outtakes and bloopers. You're going to have a live video feed inside the studio while you're recording some of these bits and maybe even this bit here, the great spot, the great Scott bit. Um, you will get, have take some of those and package them up into videos. You might have some outtakes of things that happen in the studio with you and David cutting up, or you know whether it's. And we do uh, cut up. Plus, we're going to let people playlist. They're going to be able to get the shows and the pieces in CD quality downloads that they put together. The the playlists stay on their section or their space up on Oz Central server, and uh, they can download it anytime they want to, and you know, and 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 play with it at CD quality. Yeah. Yep, that's, that's, that's outstanding. So really, it, the whole premise behind membership sites is just giving them premium content, stuff that they normally can't get. They're also going to, all of our members are going to be registered on a monthly basis for uh, game-used material, you know, some of the uh, scripts yes. that you're using and, and autographed memorabilia. Uh, and, and even maybe tickets to the Firesign Theater shows that you've got going on or... Right. You know, I know that you, you and David do your own gigs, and David's on you know writing books, and you're you're out doing yeah, we, speaking. Engagements. We call it snot rag in a bag, right? Anything exactly. we do, we sign it and we sell it or give it away. But you've got to be on Oz Central to get the old snot rag in a bag. Thanks a lot, Scott. We'll be with you next week. Okay. Looking forward to it. Fly the goddess. Multi sex plugs for your laptops, international mini meals, unlimited plague free air, no bloody babies, and extra knee room for your extra knee. Isn't that where you want to be at midnight when the big eyeball drops on those submillionaires 30,000 feet beneath you? Goddess Air, she'll get you there. Nobody can deny that BP has deep pockets but there's just not as much oil in them anymore. Too bad they just spent $2 billion in two months fighting this Gulf of Mexico oil spill disaster and compensating victims, with no end in sight to the disaster itself or the price tag. The British oil giant's latest tally includes $105 million paid out so far to 32,000 claimants. That's not much per. The figure does not include a $20 billion fund that BP set up recently... Uh, For golf residents and businesses, it's an escrow account that they set up with the White House. There are also scores of lawsuits piling up against BP for the April 20th rig explosion that, remember again, killed 11 workers and started the oil spill that may last forever. I haven't seen really anybody calling for a memorial for those 11 workers. Aren't they just as much victims of the modern world as the people who went down in 9-11? I don't see anybody calling for them because maybe it's just too fresh and just too painful. And maybe we know that our insatiable appetite for pressed dinosaur is what made this happen. Shares of BP, which have lost almost half their value since the rig Deepwater Horizon burned and sank off the uh, Louisiana coast, well, 
half their value. That's in, that's insanely bad news for one of the wealthiest companies in the world. I wonder who else went down with that. I hope it was hedge funds. I, ho- I hope it was greedy Wall Street bankers, but it'll probably be widows and orphans from Iceland and Norway. The best hope of ending the disaster rests on teams drilling two relief wells meant to stop uh, the seafloor oil gusher. It's a daunting task. Their drills have to hit a target roughly the size of a salad plate, about three miles below the water's surface. And uh, what kind of dressing would you like with that uh, salad plate, Madame and Monsieur? Uh, We're featuring a Gulf Coast vinaigrette. It's a mixture of 125 million barrels of crude and bitter tears. It's a steal at 20 billion. Lately I've been feeling old Feel it in my bones Feel it in my fingertips, you know I can Feel it in my toes Don't feel much good for nothing anymore And I think it shows And another sunset Got a wife who loves me She tells me all the time I Got a boy who's good to me You know he would Give me his last dime And I don't understand it all I've been thinking about a life of crime And another sunset a homicidal menopausal ditch I've fallen in I'm feeling suicidal I think it's time to sink or swim Yesterday, he used to play and sing. Said he let the music die, you know, couldn't play a goddamn thing. And inside, he looked so sad, like a part of him was gone. And it's another sunset.
Once again, I turn to one of my favorite newspapers in the world, the Asia Times. I highly recommend you check it out if you like to read long, interesting, insightful articles. There are no sound bites in the Asia Times. Antonia Maria Costa, head of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, last month informed the world that Afghanistan's expected opium harvest for the 2010 season will be three quarters of last year's output, a substantial reduction of 2,600 tons. Afghanistan produces over 90%. Say that again. 90% of the world's illicit supply of opiates, the key ingredient of heroin, and has produced more than 6,000 tons of opium a year since 2006. I remember when we went in there, one of our goals was to obliterate the opium trade, uh, to just devastate the poppy fields and grow wheat or, or soy or who knows what. Doesn't seem to be working. A ravaging, naturally occurring blight exacerbated by climatic conditions is behind this season's failed harvest, according to UN forensic findings. In the case of Kandahar, Helmand, and Urgazan provinces, which collectively produce 80% of the total amount of opium in Afghanistan, the blight was further spread by aphids, small plant-eating bugs that can carry fungi and viruses. Now, wait a minute. Kandahar and Helmand, isn't that where all the American crusaders are clearing out the Taliban and rebuilding Afghanistan? I want to ask you a question. Why are we always fighting in areas that grow a lot of poppies? I mean, like Southwest Asia and now Afghanistan? Is it the smell of fresh poppies in the morning? Remember Ali North and Secord were in Laos around the Golden Triangle where they grew poppies, collecting money that went through the hand bank in uh, Australia and ended up here paying for the Contra's atrocities. I I really think that if you ain't got oil and you ain't got opium, we ain't interested. The UN estimates that up to 50% of Afghanistan's opium crops have been affected. Following Costa's announcement, Taliban insurgents and angry farmers in southern Afghanistan were quick to blame international forces for aerial spraying their fields to disrupt this year's harvest. Farmers claim unconfirmed spraying of their fields has also sickened livestock, children, and hurt production of legal crops like fruits and nut trees. Like we get a lot of fruits and nuts from Afghanistan. Yeah, most of the fruits and nuts in Afghanistan are fighting the Americans. The UN, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the U.S. officials deny the claims. The Taliban's insistence on ISAF involvement and claims by farmers of finding white powder in their fields has been galvanized by a previous UNODC program funded by the United States that sought to weaponize Fusarium oxysporum, a plant fungus capable of devouring cocoa bushes, poppy fields, and marijuana plants. Well, that must have somebody there at Fort Detrick in Maryland just jumping up and down, getting wet in the pants. All three, a, a drug trifecta. Uzbekistan served as the testbed for the project, although at least two Central Asian states refused to participate, opting to manually eradicate their poppy fields. And the project was ultimately terminated in 2002 without the fungus ever being used. Efforts to deploy the virus to South America were blocked by Colombia and Peru, and even the United States prohibited aerial dispersal of the fungal agent against marijuana fields in the state of Florida, following 
warnings from scientists that the fungus could mutate into a hardier strain capable of attacking non-targeted crops and livestock. Oh, it's okay to put the sucker together and spray it on Afghanistan. It's okay to use Uzbekistan as a test area. But it's not okay to spray it on pot crops in Florida because it might make people sick and it might take out all the other legitimate crops. This is biological terrorism, and we have to face it and we have to end it. Well, Dave, back in the Great Depression, of course, this is the Greater Depression because we do everything better. Um, they used to have, there was a song that Pete Seeger, I don't know if he wrote it, but he sang it, the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door. And the vaults are stuffed with silver that the workers sweated for. Well, the banks may be made of marble, but that doesn't keep them from crumbling even today. Regulators have shut down a Nevada bank, raising to 83 the number of U.S. bank failures just this year. This year, 83 banks? Yeah, oh, boy. The Federal Deposit uh -huh. Insurance Corp took over Nevada Security Bank based in Reno, with $480.3 million in assets and $479.8 million in deposits, but it failed. Uh, the failure of the bank is expected to cost the deposit insurance fund $80.9 million. So they were $80.9 million in the red. I think I have problems, you know, balancing my books. Okay, so this is a time of bank failures, but great wisdom. This is Sarah Palin. I don't like to talk about Mama Grizzly unless she says something so weird and funny that it, it just makes the listeners chuckle. Okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. When we, asked we by O'Reilly, this is, you know, this O'Reilly. Yeah. How to stop the oil leak? Sarah Palin responded, quote, the Dutch, they are known, and the Norwegian, they are known for for dikes and for cleaning up water and for dealing with spills. This woman was almost president of the United States. For dealing with spills. The Dutch, uh -huh, they are the known. Dutch. I love the way she talks like this, you know, the <clears throat> Dutch, they are known, and the Norwegian, they are known for dikes and cleaning up water and dealing with spills. Next. Sarah. Come on, the best minds uh, in the uh, to to quote <laughs> to quote uh, Ginsburg, the best minds of our generation are out there in the middle of the Gulf trying to figure out why those sheer blades didn't come together. You know, they had dozens of of cameras down there. They've got all these undersea cameras. Right. They made how many billions of dollars BP last year? Profit. Profit. Uh, Seventeen billion. Seventeen billion dollars profit. Their daily expenses must be a billion dollars. Which means that I'm sorry about all those pension funds that are have to go to hell here, but you know they could lower the price of oil and make a little less money, and still be able to spend billions of dollars cleaning it all up. You know, I mean, just a little less money. This story of a good man from Talking Points Memo: "Quote: Do not underestimate the emotionalism and the frustration and the anger of people in the Gulf, uncertain of their financial future." This from Kenneth Feinberg, who is administrating the twenty billion dollar BP Gulf disaster fund. It's very pronounced," he said. "I witnessed it firsthand last week." Feinberg, who is also running the victims' claims fund set up in the wake of the September 11, 2001 terror attacks, said he is determined to speed up payment of claims. His appearance came a week after the administration worked out an arrangement with oil giant BP to, to establish an independent claims fund 
$20 billion initially, and pledged to reconfigure the system and expedite payments. Feinberg said BP has paid out over $100 million so far, and various estimates place total claims far in excess of $600 million. Here again, Feinberg. The top message is the message conveyed to me by the president, Feinberg said. We want to get these claims out quicker. We want to get these claims out with more transparency. He said people can file electronically for relief if they wish, and they need not hire a lawyer. He also said he believes that when a person comes in and asks for emergency assistance, they shouldn't have to keep coming back, suggesting lump sum emergency payments. Asked how officials can guard against false claims, people are always first talking about false claims. Give someone welfare because they're starving to death? Well, what about all the false claims? Okay, so officials uh, ask, how do you guard against? How do you guard against these false claims? And Feinberg said he didn't think that would be a major problem and said that in the 9-11 experience, there was only a handful of such claims. He did say uh, there could be an issue involving claimants who say they were indirectly harmed by the spill, such as a Boston restaurateur, theoretically arguing that his business was hurt by the inability to bring shrimp in from the Gulf. Hey, how much are you going to pay me for my emotional distress? Interesting news from Talking Points Memo. Governor Charlie Crist. This is the man who was a nice, middle-of-the-road Republican governor of Florida who decided to run for senator. Everybody liked him. But the Republican Party, the NOP, the teabag heads said, you're not conservative enough. And so they ran this guy, Marco Rubio, against him in the primary. And all of the people that Christ raised money for and supported in the, in the 2008 election, John McCain in particular, abandoned him. They, were, they had their lips so surgically attached to the butts of the teabaggers, okay? Well, Governor Charlie Crist has a large lead in the three-way race to be the next senator from Florida, according to a recent poll. The poll shows Crist with a double-digit lead over both of his opponents in the general election, likely Republican nominee Marco Rubio and the Democrat. Kenneth Meek. That's the wrong. Yeah. You don't run. The Meek are not going to inherit the Senate seat. I don't think so. But he's the he's the official Democrat, right? Because what Chris did is he left the Republican Party and is running as an independent. Really? Chris stands with 42% of the vote, Rubio with 31%, and Meek with 14%, which means the people of Florida, and there's all kinds of wingnuts there too, you know, are saying, uh-uh, that's, this is not right. This is not right. This, this is our man. The poll is good news for Chris, who saw his fortunes change when he left the GOP April 29th. It's also more bad news for Meek, who is now facing increasing pressure from billionaire Jeff Green, who is spending a large chunk of his personal fortune on trying to win the Democratic nomination. So I guess Meek hasn't even been nominated yet, okay? Wow. Well, he ought to give Meg Whitman and Mayor Bloomberg a call because they are experts on uh, how to buy yourself into you know, into into a seat. No, wait a minute. Rubio is facing his own problems. He was able to um, scare his real opponent out of the Republican primary race, but now he's being stung by a, a string of recent stories that that are taking the shine off the apple of his conservative megastar. Over the weekend, the Saint Petersburg Times labeled Rubio the Florida political loser of the week. Florida's loser of the week. Like they have a loser every week. Yeah, well, they probably do, you know. But poll, polling, you know, if uh, polling seems to be skewed 
toward conservatives, and I'll tell you why. It, what is that? Well, because most uh, uh, landline phones seem to still be in the homes of conservatives who are too old or confused to get a a cell phone or even cell phone, you know, uh, reception. But here's the the latest. A Pew study, Pew, uh, you know, pollsters, revealed that landline-only respondents tend to be more politically and socially conservative than respondents from mixed or cell phone-only Homes. Mixed cell phone homes. Yeah, yeah. It's Keep another, going. It's another Keep thing. Going. Landline only respondents demonstrate more political engagement, more often registering to vote and following the news closely. In nearly every political category, landline only owners side with traditionally conservative views on issues as varied as the legality of gay marriage, marijuana, abortion, and agreement with the Tea Party. Okay? So, uh, uh, however, uh, 18 to 29-year-olds have 41% of the cell phone market, but only 7% of the landlines. So we're looking at, at a completely skewed result. The, the, the next time you see these, uh, these polls, ask whether or not they talked on their home phone connected to the wall and AT&T, or were they out, you know, having a good time, hanging? Raving, doing a little ecstasy, thinking big thoughts. They don't poll cell phones, they don't and they poll. haven't found a way to do it yet. They have not found it, and they're worried about it. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the guys at uh, Pew said this, uh, the propensity for bias didn't harm the predictive accuracy of landline polls in the 2008 election, perhaps because the cell-only population was slightly smaller then, but it may well be a problem for the next election to predict accurately without calling everybody on their cell phone. And hey, I don't want anybody to call me on my cell phone, do you? Well, it's not a zero-sum world. Just because Oz is coming to an end doesn't mean it's not going to be reborn again tomorrow. But here we go. A little tang, and then we're on our way. All right. This um, this little tang is called a clear, wet dawn. Seems like the right way to start the week. Yep. Cool fields. The thin rain stops. Spring in every direction. Blue pond swarms with fish. Thrushes sing in the green branches. Flowers look tear-streaked. Grass in high meadows bends level. Through the bamboo in the still stream, you can see the last shreds of cloud scattering in the dawn wind. Well, that sounds like Whidbey Island summer, you know. It just keeps on raining. Well, thanks for being with Radio Free Oz today. The Oz team thanks you. Peter Bergman, that's me, your host. David Osman, your co-host. John Cummings, who just advises us on things electronic. Phil Fountainhead of the Oz Design Group. Tom Gedwillow in charge of the web. Chaz Glass, Mr. Finance. Dave Maloney, Mr. Sound. Bill McIntyre, Mr. Producer. And Scott Wilde, king of social media. Catch you again soon.